will be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I was considering whether or not to preach through 1 Samuel this morning or go on a more resurrection, literal resurrection text. As I thought about it, what is more victorious and triumphant than David and Goliath? So I stuck with it. So we are sticking with it this morning. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one in the row in front of you. You can uh, use that this morning. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that home as our gift. We'll be in 1 Samuel 17, 38 through 58. This should be a familiar passage for most people, even if you're not, you don't go to church or um, aren't as well versed in the Bible. You've probably heard this story, David and Goliath. We, we took it in two parts. first part was the um, week before, and since it's such a long passage, and we focused on what David had to, sort of the hurdles he had to go over uh, before even facing Goliath. And so now we're actually looking at Goliath and David facing each other. And we'll begin in verse 38. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We stand out of respect for the, the speaker who is God. I'm just the reader. We, we, we are here for God and his word. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. 
And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. And as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, give us humility as we come before your word this morning so that we can see the truth in it, so that we can be led closer to you. Holy Spirit, bless us as we read your word, as we hear it preached. Use me, Father, to be your mouthpiece. Thank you, Father, for drawing us to you this morning through your word and through this truth. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to admit that I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of <clears throat> bugs and creepy crawlies and any kind of uh, vermin that makes its way into our house. So we live in a, a house that's old. It's over 100 years old. So you can imagine there's little gaps uh, in the house, and we've, 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 we've had our battles with, with these sorts of things. And... Um, and I've learned, being married for a while, uh, as the husband, you are expected to take care of this problem, right? To squash whatever uh, comes in and crawls into the house. And if you're a young man here and um, hope to be married one day, just know this is going to be expected of you. You take on this role as head of the house to uh, take care of any intruders right, that come into the house. Now, I must admit, though, I don't have a, a perfect track record. There are times when I have not done my job well, and um, the whatever it is has gotten away. Sometimes they're fast, right? So you can't blame me. <clears throat> but in those in those moments, in those times, I've I've in my humiliation, let me say, like Adam in the garden, I've pointed the finger. I've pointed the finger at my kids. And at my wife, saying, you guys could have helped me in this process. You, you, could, have, you could have done something here, maybe more than, than just calling for me. But in those events, my wife has kindly reminded me of my unique role and responsibility to protect us uh, and my family from any unwanted guests. And she's right. She's absolutely right. And as I said last week, this story of David and Goliath, it's a famous story, but it's bigger than what you're just thinking of when just this, this, this um, competition between two people. It's more than about uh, us being this courageous believer in God and facing your own giants. The story of David and Goliath is about the entire Bible's narrative of good versus evil, of God's people versus the armies of evil and the devil himself. It speaks to the glory of God and the glory of his champion, David. And so David was in this unique role. 
this unique, anointed, spirit-filled role to reign as Israel's next king and to protect Israel from intruders. And so here was his chance to do it, to prove himself, to eliminate this imposing giant, to protect his people. This story is about our need for a Savior. But what does all this have to do with Resurrection Sunday? Well, resurrection is ultimately about victory, isn't it? It's ultimately about triumph. It's about the victory of Jesus over death, over Satan, and triumphing over them and putting them to open shame. Resurrection is about Jesus victoriously rising again and giving us certain hope and resurrection hope of this life, eternal life, that's been achieved for us. Resurrection is essential to the gospel message. C.S. Lewis wrote that to preach Christianity meant to the apostles primarily to preach the resurrection. He says the resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the book of Acts. The resurrection of Jesus and its consequences were the gospel or good news which the Christians brought. You can't Get rid of resurrection and still have the gospel. It's essential to the gospel. Everything hangs on whether or not the resurrection is true. So what does the resurrection of Christ have to do with the battle of David and Goliath? Well, just as David conquers Israel's enemy, so too did Jesus conquer our ultimate enemy and achieve salvation for those who trust in him. So this morning, I want you to know that we have a real God who offers real salvation. The question is, are you ready to receive it? Are you ready to receive the salvation? Have you received it? If you have, are you living in it? Is it shaping your mind? Is it shaping your life? Is it shaping your desires and your heart? Got three main points this morning. Salvation is required, salvation is real, and salvation is ready. Let's look at our first idea. Salvation is required. You see, on our own, you and I are in trouble. Just like Israel was in trouble, you and I are in trouble. On our own, we need a champion. You see, neither Israel or David was a match against Goliath. They were, they were scared. For, remember, for 40 days, Goliath had come out. Morning and evening to challenge in single combat An Israelite, no one would come forward. They were trembling. And this is true for us. Salvation, another word for salvation, is rescue. We need to be rescued. You and I are born in what the Bible calls sin. We are rebels against God. We choose our own path. We choose our own way. We don't want God. We don't want Him. We need to be rescued. We can't just flip a switch and... And start doing good and believe in him. We need to be rescued. And we can't do it on our own. We are dead in our sin. A few years ago, I was, we were taking our kids to one of our elders' pool uh, at, at his house. And my uh, third, young, uh, third oldest, so uh, second youngest child, Holden, was about a year and a half, and he was sitting on the pool steps with me, and he's just kind of splashing around next to me. And I was right next to him, but all of a sudden, he took a dive. 
He didn't have a swimmy on or anything. He took a dive headfirst into the pool as I'm next to him. And he sunk like a rock. <laughs> and for a split moment, you have this kind of freak out moment like, oh no, I got I to, like, you don't, you don't react fast enough and everybody in the pool sees you not responding to your kid doing a, a, a nosedive in the pool. But he sunk like a rock and he had no chance of survival if I wasn't there. He needed rescue. We are just like that in our sin. We need rescue. We have no chance of getting out on our own. We have to have someone come save us. And so here we have Israel, and they're helpless. They need a Savior. And what do we see happen? That God, through David, stands in the gap for Israel. This is about triumph of God over all his enemies. And we see before the actual fighting happens, we see two speeches. We see that Goliath has a speech and David has a response to his speech. Look at verse 43 and 44. And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And he also said in verse 44, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. You see his arrogance, right? You see his, his, he's proud. He's, he's confident in what? He's confident in his strength. He's confident in his sword and his armor. He's over nine feet tall, right? He's confident in what, he, what you can see on the outside. But look at David's response. What is he confident in? Verse 45. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Notice that David's courage doesn't come from himself. It comes from the living God of Israel. He knows who is going to save this day, that, that it's going to be God. It's not going to be even his own strength. And that's what we need in our sin. We need someone to overcome that. We can't do anything on our own about it. Our sin. We need God to act. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Just as Israel was incapable of defeating Goliath, we are incapable of working our way into heaven. Friends, we are as good as dead on our own. We need salvation. We need rescue. That's the first idea. Salvation is required. Secondly, salvation is real. Salvation is real. David really did kill Goliath. He really did sling this stone and hit him in the forehead and come over with a sword and took his head off. David really did do this. We know, we know this is factual because uh, later in 1 Samuel, the sword of Goliath is actually kept in the temple at Nob, and he uses it later. And we know this is real because this story was witnessed, or this scene was witnessed by thousands of people, and it was handed down from generation to generation to ours. And it was, this is not just, he didn't, he didn't just spiritually kill Goliath, he did it physically. Right? He had to take him and kill him and sling this military weapon uh, with a stone on the first shot and kill him. 
our faith is rooted in facts. Don't ever believe that our faith is just just this philosophy that we've sort of invented and come up with. No, our faith as Christians is rooted in reality, in facts. That Jesus really did rise again. That the tomb really is empty. These are facts that are indisputable. And so I think it's important on, on Easter Sunday to, to actually what are, think about what are those historical facts of the resurrection? What, why do we uh, celebrate this day? Is it just something that somebody came up with? So let's look at the evidence together. I'm just going to present to you three historical facts about the resurrection. The first historical fact is that the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was discovered empty. This discovery is reported in six independent sources in the Gospels and Acts. Luke 24, John 20, 1 Corinthians 15, Mark 16, Matthew 28, and Acts 2. And some of these sources are among the earliest materials to be found in the New Testament. See, this is important because when an event is recorded by two or more unconnected sources, historians, whether Christian or non-Christian, historians' confidence that the event actually happened increases. And the earlier these sources are dated, the higher their confidence. Also, women are said to have discovered the tomb. This is likely historical because in that culture, a woman's woman's testimony was considered pretty much worthless, not even allowed in court. So if if you're trying to come up with a story, fabricate a story, you wouldn't have put women as the first source who discovered the empty tomb. It would have been men. A later legend would have had men making the discovery. Also, Jewish authorities' response. What was their response to the empty tomb? The the leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees? They said that Jesus' followers had stolen the body. So they were admitting that Jesus' tomb was, in fact, empty. So even those who were against this early movement, they admit the tomb was empty. A scholar, Jacob Kremer, says, Most scholars, by far, hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Right? Believer, non-believer, it's indisputable the tomb was empty. Historical fact number two. Many people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. In one of the earliest letters of the New Testament, Paul provides a list of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he says he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Go talk to them. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And then finally he appeared also to me, Paul says. Furthermore, various resurrection appearances of Jesus are independently confirmed by the gospel accounts. And on the basis of Paul's testimony alone, virtually all historical scholars agree that various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. So many people saw this. Many people witnessed it. Scholar Gerd Ludman says, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Historical fact number three, perhaps one of the most important, The followers of Jesus believed in the resurrection themselves. That after Jesus' crucifixion, think about it, the followers of Jesus were devastated. They were demoralized. 
and they were hiding in fear for their lives. And this is not what they, as Jews, were expecting. Think about it. The Jews had no real concept of a Messiah who would be executed by his enemies. They had no concept of a Messiah who would come back to life. They did believe in a resurrection, but that was a universal event on Judgment Day after the end of the world, not an individual event within history. A typical Jew believed that crucifixion as a criminal meant that someone was literally under God's curse. If you remember in the Gospels, Jesus would often tell them he's going to rise again on the third day, and they just it wouldn't compute, right? It just wouldn't make sense to them. So they had a lot to be demoralized about, but what happened? They became so completely convinced of Jesus' resurrection that even when threatened with death, not one of them changed their story. Even the Pharisee Paul, who persecuted Christians, suddenly became a Christian himself, as did Jesus' skeptical younger brother James. Luke Timothy Johnson, the scholar, says, some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement the earliest Christianity was. It had to be some sort of transformative event. N.T. Wright says, that is why as a historian... I cannot explain the rise of the early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. So Jesus really did rise, die, and rise again. That's what we believe, but the point is we have facts to to back that up. Historical reliability is undeniable if you look at the evidence. If you look at the evidence. Don't, Don't let anybody ever tell you that the Gospels and the resurrection is unreliable. It is. And so if that is true, if Jesus did rise again from the dead, that our faith is not just a good idea, it's commanded. That this is the risen Lord. God demands, not advises, praise. If Jesus rose, he has a claim on us. He has a claim on our lives. If Jesus is alive, he deserves all of our praise, our lives, and our hearts. Brothers and sisters, our faith is in the real, living God. You know, many Christians are mocked for being known as worshipers of some made-up fairy tale. With With this fairy tale God, with no basis in reality, I'm here to tell you that what you do on Sunday morning in church, gathered as God's people, is the truest thing of all. You worship the living, the real God. And it's simply not true that people choose not to worship. You will choose to worship something every day of your life. The question is, will it be the true God or not? If you worship money, for instance, it will destroy, it will destroy every relationship you have and you'll end up lonely and sad. If you worship sex, it will consume you and those you use for pleasure. If you worship drugs and alcohol, it will slowly kill you and every relationship you have will crumble. If you worship your kids, the weight of your expectations on them will destroy them. If you worship your spouse, the weight of your expectation on on them will destroy them. The choice we are given in life is not whether or not we will worship. Everyone worships. The choice we are given is what we will worship. Something real and life-giving or something 
deadly and life-taking. That's the choice we have. You can't opt out of worship. Everybody worships. What will you choose? What will you choose? So our salvation is required. Our salvation is real. But our salvation is also ready. It's the third idea this morning. Our salvation is ready. We see that in verses 50 through 52, David prevailed. He, he won. He destroyed Goliath. He took his head off. He prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Salvation is ready. What David did when he won that day is he handed the victory sort of to his, his Israelites on a silver platter. Salvation's ready. It's like when we're cooking uh, dinner for our children, we'll say, dinner's ready, it's all prepared, it's on the table, come and get it. And you know, sometimes they're excited and they, they run to dinner when the dinner bell, metaphorically, is rung. But sometimes they don't come. Sometimes we have to yell three or four or five times upstairs, hey, come on downstairs, dinner's ready. It's prepared, it's hot. Well, salvation is ready. Everything's been done. It's been completed. It's ready. Are you? The battle is won. The meal is prepared, but it won't be there forever. There is no chance to receive Christ after you die. Have you trusted in him? You have to do it in this life. You have to do it before you die. There's an urgency to this question. Look at, verses, look at the response of, of the Israelites after David wins. Verse 51 and 52. He says, <clears throat> When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. I mean, what a sight this must have been. Forty straight days, Goliath is coming forward to fight. No one shows up. David shows up, kills Goliath. I mean, what a sight. What the excitement in the Israelite camp must have been off the charts. I was thinking about what this must have looked like. It, it was probably similar to when uh, your favorite football team or basketball team beats uh, a rival. And then what happens? Everybody storms the field, right? Everybody runs onto the field and celebrates. That's probably what this sort of looked like. He kills Goliath. Everybody runs. The Philistines run away. And so what is our best response to the victory and triumph of our champion? Isn't it celebratory fighting for the champion? What the Israelites did? That's, that's how you celebrate. That's what David had won for them. He, he'd set it up. The victory was theirs. It was settled and final. Now let's go celebrate. Let's go run forward and take, take our victory. I've got three application points this morning as we consider how do we apply this, this idea. The first application point is that the church has God on its side. The church has God on its side. See, when Israel's army was defied, God was defied. When the church is defied, God is defied. That, that God is at work in his church. He says, Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When Saul is persecuting the church, how does Jesus respond to Saul? What does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Paul was persecuting the church. But Jesus says he was persecuting him. Jesus links himself to his church, to his bride. We have God on our side. It doesn't mean we have to be arrogant, but we can be confident. Do you see how David responded to Goliath? He, he had some sharp words to Goliath. He was confident, not in himself, but in God. And so no matter how the church is perceived in the world, no matter how you perceive the church, the church is Christ's. He will take care of his church. The church can move forward with God. Application point two Look at verse 46. This is what David says to Goliath. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. You see, even here, David has a global idea. God has a global idea of what His mission is for. It's for the whole world to know that Israel has a God. Therefore, we can boldly, as God's church, continue God's mission to spread hope in this world. But it doesn't just stop here. It's to continue. That you and I spread hope by spreading the message of Jesus, of his victory, as the champion over sin and death. Jesus said to the disciples before he ascended into heaven, Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to be, observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who will you share this glorious news with this week? Have someone in your mind. Who are you going to share this message with? Who are you going to tell? This is not just for the church. This is for the world, that the world may know that there is a real God, a real living God that they desperately need. And third application point. Weakness is a prerequisite for being useful to God. Weakness is a prerequisite for being useful to God. To God. Dale Ralph Davis says that the theme of weakness has been building all throughout this chapter. All the important people regard David as weak. What matters is not that you have the best weapons, but whether you have the real God. In fact, your inadequacy may be precisely your qualification for serving God, for his strength shines most brightly behind the foreground of your weakness. As as David says, the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Brother and sister in Christ, God will use you, weaknesses and all, for his purpose to bring hope to the world. He's going to use you. And we have a Savior who displayed this perfectly. That Jesus was saved not by slaying, but by being slain. That his death was our victory. And his resurrection was our triumph. Friends, we're strong when we're weak, when we look to Christ. And when we're feeling insignificant like a little shepherd boy, God will be glorified when we step forward in faith to serve him where he's called us. So where are you feeling weak this morning? Where is God calling you to be weak but useful to God?
That's how he uses us best. I read this earlier from 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is, is, is talking about this gospel that he preached and that it's centered on the resurrection and that Jesus appeared to Peter. He, he appeared to 500 at a time. He appeared to the disciples. And then he says, he appeared also to me, one born untimely, for I am least of the apostles. Can you, can you hear the grief in Paul's words there? I am least of the apostles because I, what? Persecuted the church. He was humble, even still. He wrote most of our New Testament, yet he said, I'm least of all the apostles. He felt his weakness greatly. He knew what he had done. And he probably carried that his whole life. But God used him mightily, didn't he? When David struck Goliath, this is what's so amazing. When, when David struck Goliath and killed him, Goliath couldn't talk anymore. He couldn't accuse anymore. He couldn't speak lies anymore. When Jesus rose from the grave, he shut the mouth of Satan. He can't accuse you anymore. But God can use you. He can use you. He's calling us to be weak. He's calling us to be uh, reliant upon him and dependent upon him. And when we are, we can be used by God, just as Paul was in a mighty way. But we need to be rescued. We need salvation. So, brothers and sisters, on this day, be encouraged that salvation is ready. It's ready for you. Just take it. The victory is sure. Let's pray. Father, we are overjoyed at the truth that you've done it all. That salvation is secure. It's ready. And you are building your church, Jesus. And nothing can stop it. Father, when we're tempted to doubt, when we're tempted to when we're tempted to think that we'll never be useful in your kingdom, let the words of of Paul, remind us that you'll use even a persecutor of the church. You'll raise us up. You'll transform us. Not because we're great, but because you are great. This message of hope needs to get out. Would you burden us with it to get it out to those who desperately need it? We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.